How you guys doing? Good. All right. I want to ask you guys a question before we get started today. How many of you have Christmas traditions that you do? Like every year, this is a, I do this every year. This is what we look forward to as far as Christmas is concerned. Raise your hand, some of you guys. All right, how many of you, some of those Christmas traditions, how many of you have certain movies that every year you watch? And if you don't watch this movie or this show or something like that, it's it's not Christmas. So, uh David's got a, a microphone. I want you to share what, what that one, you know, one of those things is. Well, we, Christmas Eve, we go and look, drive through the neighborhoods looking at the lights. And then the movie is a Christmas story. Okay, okay. So we got the Christmas story. Raise your hand. We watch It's Christmas, Charlie Brown with like... Christmas Eve, we take Luminarius to the cemetery and spend some time with parents and it is the most beautiful sight you've ever seen. Christmas traditions, movies that you watch that make sure that... Go ahead, TJ. Okay, it's not a movie, but we bake a birthday cake for Jesus. Okay, okay, cool. Cool. Our Christmas tradition is to go spend Christmas with friends somewhere in the country and do their traditions. Oh, interesting. That's awesome. That's awesome. Anybody else? That's all the Christmas traditions in the house. We like to watch It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you are, oh, It's a Wonderful Life. You got to watch that during the Christmas season, okay? White Christmas, Polar Express. I could go on. Holiday Inn. <laughs> Die Hard. Come on. <laughs> All right. Well, we have some Christmas traditions in our house. I think one of ours is a Charlie Brown Christmas. We've got to watch that one. It's a Wonderful Life is another one that, that during the, the season of Christmas, we need to watch that one. But honestly, one of my favorites is... Um, a Christmas Carol, and it's a specific one. It's the one in 1984 that was done with George C. Scott in it, okay? And I think it terrified my kids with the ghosts of Christmas future, right? Mike is in the back. Yeah. Jacob Marley, yeah. Jacob Marley was also freaky too. But the, the movie opens with this line. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. This is how the movie begins. It's actually how the little novella begins as well. If you've ever read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And everything on this movie hinges on the fact that Marley was dead. And yet, it's only through his death that Ebenezer Scrooge has any hope. It's such an odd phrasing, isn't it? Death brings a wondrous hope. And yet we find it so in Charles Dickens' classic. And we find it here as we study the death of Jesus through the eyes of John. 
The title of my sermon today is called The One Thing We Can All Be Sure Of. This past week we've read John 18 and 19 together. If you're new here, what we've been doing is reading the Bible together six days a week and then coming together and the sermon is based upon what we've read. We see something very similar in this passage, a very, very odd phrasing, very odd, just like a Christmas carol. John chapter 19, starting in verse 28, it says, toward the end of the account of Jesus' crucifixion, it says this, later knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. You know, it was important for John to highlight the gruesomeness of Jesus' death. As a matter of fact, it's the death of Jesus, much like Marley in A Christmas Carol, for which this entire account hinges. It's only after the piercing of Jesus' side and the confirmation of death does John mention these words. The man who saw this has given his testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. What an odd place to put that statement. It isn't, I mean, seriously, we, we've been reading the Gospel of John this entire time, and, and we see that the, the whole crux of where we're leading to is that these miracles are recorded because Jesus did many more miracles than these, but these are recorded that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you may have life in His name. In all the other places where it's written that you might believe, whether Jesus is saying it or John is alluding to it, it's usually after a miracle of some sort, where the, the wine is changed uh, from water and the disciples believe. When the tearing down of the temple, and it's like, well, after he was raised, we, we recognize that this is something that we should have known ahead of time. When we see the man who's by, by the pool of Bethesda, and that he's raised up. Why? So that they might believe. Jesus says, if you don't believe in me, at least believe in the miracles, that you might believe that I am who I say I am. But yet here, 
Here is the death of Jesus. We're, we're not seeing a completed action at this point. We're seeing only the death. And John writes very carefully that this is written down that you might believe. What an interesting place to put it. I don't know if any of you thought the same thing while you read these things this week. That why, why is this written here? I could understand next week. But why here? Why now? Why in this chapter? Why, why is this so important for John to mention it after Jesus has died? I think there are three things that we can look at. The first one is this. John wrote this to let you know that he was an eyewitness to the gruesome death of Jesus. John is the only one of the disciples who is at the cross when Jesus dies. All the other disciples have fled. Peter has denied Jesus, and in every account, whether we look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after his denial, we see nothing of Peter anymore. He's gone. Ashamed. John is the only one recorded to be at the cross at that time. As a matter of fact, the only ones recorded being at the cross of Jesus' death are John, John's mother, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Salome, and a few other women who are left unnamed. There is something about being an eyewitness to something. To actually say that you were there for it. That changes everything. Right? I have a picture on my phone of El Porvenir. How many of you have been to El Porvenir? Raise your hand. Most of us? Many? <laughs> That's weird. Do that again. How many of you have been to El Porvenir? It's like this side. And then this side hasn't been. It's kind of wild. It's, it's interesting though. Pictures don't do it justice. One of my, my background screen on my phone, if you come and look at my phone, my background screen is of, of being a panoramic picture of sunrise. I love sunrise. My favorite hike, really, sincerely, in all of the world. And yet, that picture doesn't do justice of what it's like to be up on top of sunrise and just taking it all in and feeling the wind and hearing all of that, seeing the eagles, literally eagles, swimming underneath you in the air. It is awesome. I can't explain it to you any better than that. And it pales into comparison to actually being there. Think about people who have, who have witnessed events that we've only read in history books. You know, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, we celebrated Veterans Day. All of our veterans who were out serving our country in different areas and maybe even during different wars. My dad served in the Vietnam War. Others may have served in World War II. It's a much different thing trying to read it in the history books than actually living it out. And there really is no comparison. Those of us who lived through 9-11, who can believe? Seriously. 
That's over 20 years ago. I was here. I had just gotten here. I remember what that was like. I, I remember the, the fright and the fear of what everybody was worried about. But it's hard to convey that to the generation growing up right now because they have nothing to experience that with. The eyewitness account just is different. It takes into account so much more than you could ever write down or take pictures of. Even though we have video of that event that has happened, it's not the same as when it happened in real time. 20 years from now, we're going to be looking back at what happened with COVID. And we'll have a different perspective than we, what we do right now because it's a little too close. 20 years from now, we'll look back for good or for ill. And those of us who have lived through it, our kids, my grandchild who was just born, will not understand the difference that it made to our nation, to our world at that time in the same way that you and I who experienced it did. Because we were there. John was there. At the crucifixion of Jesus. Every account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have to rely upon these eyewitnesses and Jesus himself for what concerning the crucifixion of Jesus, because these were the eyewitnesses. And it's just different if you're there. Just different. So that's the first thing. John wanted to let you know. I was there. I was there. Number two. It's to let us know that beyond any shadow of doubt, Jesus was dead. Beyond any shadow of doubt, Jesus was dead. The mocking, the flogging, the crown of thorns, the condemnation to crucifixion, the lack of strength to carry his own cross, the piercing of his side after death. These are all confirmations of of what Jesus went through on the cross for you and me. And walking through all of that, John can say, I am looking at this and I'm telling you he was not alive. And and the irony is that there have been a number of theories since the 19th century that have kind of cropped up, some of them even earlier than that, to try and deny that Jesus was actually dead on the cross. The most popular of these is the swoon theory, which still makes its rounds on the internet to this day. And the idea was that Jesus, after all of that had went on, simply looked like he was dead. They took him down from the cross. They laid him in a grave. And the coolness and the, the niceness of the grave revived him to where he was able to get up and show himself to his disciples. If you know anything about the punishments that Jesus had endured beforehand, you'd realize how ridiculous 
a theory like that was. We know that Jesus was flogged. Know that he was flogged. And that this was historically accurate to what Romans did to people who were flogged. They were whipped supposedly 39 times, just short of death. Their back was ripped to shreds as a result of it. And the fact that it was ripped to shreds means they would have lost a lot of blood, which meant they would not have any strength, which would explain why Jesus could not, did not have the strength to carry his own cross. He was most likely in shock as they nailed him to the cross. And the pain shot through his hands and through his feet. And the way that you were on the cross, you didn't die of your pain, although you absolutely could have died of your pain. You didn't die of your pain. You died of asphyxiation because they put you out this way. And in order to inhale, you had to lift yourself up by using your feet that were also nailed to the cross And you had to lift yourself up to give your lungs the capacity to do that. And when you lost the strength to be able to do that, you suffocated. The idea that he simply swooned and these seven-inch nails that were in his wrists and in his feet... We're just, oh, it's just a flesh wound. Defies any medical explanation on what the disciples would see next. Swoon theory doesn't hold much water, quite honestly. Even those who are opponents of Christianity discount the swoon theory, knowing the type of tortures that Jesus went through while he was on the cross. There are other theories that are out there. The mixed-up tomb theory, that they placed him in the wrong tomb. Problem with that is, as soon as they said Jesus was no longer there, all they had to go is, nope, he's in this tomb right here. Let's open it up. Let's find out. And yet, we see in many accounts concerning, including the one we have here, is that the burial of Jesus was known to at least a dozen people. Doesn't hold a whole lot of water. The hallucination theory. Everybody afterwards was just all hallucinating. Hallucinations are individual things. Group people don't have hallucinations. Doesn't happen. It's not a psychiatric thing that that is repeatable anyplace else. You've never seen a group of people who all hallucinated the same thing. 500 people, really? Imagine a group three times our size, and we all saw the same thing, and it wasn't real. Our technology today, we'd say it's holograms or something like that, but that's a different story, right? They're, They're talking about something that everybody attested to that wasn't real. The stolen body theory. Now this one dates back all the way back to Jesus' time because Matthew's gospel mentions it. That the disciples 
who were scared and ran away from everybody else during Jesus' arrest somehow got courage to confront the Roman guards in front of Jesus' tomb to subdue and take the body. Yeah, I'm not seeing that one very well either. They've already run, and we're going to see where they're at later next week. I'm not going to spoil that, even though John spoils it all throughout the gospel, right? The gospel is like, we know where this is ending. All throughout. We've been reading. I've spoiled the ending all the way through. But guess what? The disciples are where you are expecting them to be if they're cowards. They're not, where they, they're not going to be brave enough to go to the tomb to confront Roman guards who are there to protect the body from being stolen. It's not going to happen. And then there is the moved body theory. Again, this goes back to somebody moved the body. Well, we can show you where we moved it to. The end. Or one that's like it, the relocated body theory. This is a little bit different because there was a Jewish practice that relocated the body. The only problem with that practice is this. That relocated body would only happen after the flesh had deteriorated and there was nothing but bones left. This was about a year-long process. They would wait at least a year before they would relocate a body because now it was nothing but bones. We see something similar happening with Joseph and his bones when they took him up in Genesis from the land of Egypt to the land of promise. But it didn't happen a couple days after death was going to take place. See, we can, you can read about all of these different theories in a couple places. I want to give you guys some resources real, real quick. One is uh, More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. He goes, he goes through a number of these things. Another one is The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. Just a small read, about a 90-page book, little booklet. Or you can read his larger work, which is The Case for Christ, where he goes into more depth and detail concerning many of those things. But the reason why this is important for us to know is because we need to know beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dead. He, he endured so much that a man would not be able to live through it. And one of the things you see almost all experts proclaim is that there's no way that Jesus could have survived his wounds. Zero chance. As a matter of fact, this piercing of the spear into the side of Jesus would go into his heart, which is why you see the flow of both blood and water. Why is this important? Why is it important that John say he was dead? And this is so you have an eyewitness so that you might believe. Because something's about to happen. That only means something if Jesus is dead. And the interesting thing about this, this is the third thing from this account that we've read this week. Jesus knew he was going to die. I mean, how many times have we read this, right? Jesus knew he was going to die. And if we read the accounts, whether we're reading in John or we're reading in Matthew 
or Mark or Luke. Here's the amazing thing about all of these accounts. He's the only one in control. Think about the interactions that happen. We're just going to look at John's gospel, but the same thing happens in the other gospels as well. And think about the interactions that happen with all of them. Let's take a look at some of our reading this past week. John chapter 18, going into the first part of this. Starting in verse 4. Jesus, knowing that, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked, asked them, who is it that you want? This is at his arrest. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth, I told you that I am he. Jesus answered, if you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Simon Peter, who had the sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This this whole section of scripture starts that Jesus knew this is going to happen to him. The guards come and they're going to arrest him and they say, hey, we're looking for Jesus. I am he. What do they do? They, they stumble back. He's, he's using the name of God. Yahweh, I'm here. I am he. They stumble back in reverence to what's going on. Who's the one in control here? Not the guards. Peter wanting to save Jesus from himself, guess what? Draws his sword out and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Have you guys ever wondered why Peter wasn't arrested? Think about it. He drew the sword and he struck the ear off of the high priest's servant. Usually that would mean, you're going too, buddy. But he doesn't. We get in Luke's account the reason why. Because Jesus heals him. That ear that is struck off is healed. Now there's no more reason to arrest Peter. And he lets everybody go, just as the scripture says. He hasn't lost any of them. Who's the one in control here? Isn't that odd that the one who's arrested is the one who's actually in control of what is going on? That's kind of crazy because some people would make Jesus out to be a victim. And he's definitely not that. Let's look at his account with Annas. The former high priest who is also considered high priest. Much like when we talk about former presidents, we still refer to them as Mr. President. Right? Same thing happened with the high priest here. This is why you're going to hear both Annas and Caiaphas here referenced as high priest. Starting in verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. What we see 
in the interaction with Annas. And if you look in the other Gospels, the interaction with Caiaphas, who is the one in control? Jesus is the one in control. Why did you strike me? If I, if I said something wrong, testify to what's wrong. Uh, again, putting them on the defensive. Jesus is not on the defensive. But he's the one on trial. He's the one they've arrested. He's the one they've got it out for. He's the one they want to crucify. All of those things are right there. And yet Jesus seems to be the one in control of this whole situation. Consider him before Pilate. We'll look at two instances. Verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked, and with this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. You are a king then. It's for this reason that I was born, but my kingdom's not of this world. He would go on in John chapter 19 as they continued this interaction between Pilate and Jesus and Pilate and the crowds that would come back as they're trying to get Jesus condemned. It comes out, That Jesus is not even proclaiming to be just a king, but he's also proclaiming to be the Son of God. Verse 7, chapter 19. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, do you not realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Who is the one who looks like they're in control here? Is it Pilate who walks back and is afraid after hearing these these? Um, claims about Jesus being both king and the son of God, he comes back and he's afraid he's trying to set him free. He can't overcome the crowds. And yet Jesus very calmly is saying, that weren't granted from heaven above, you'd have no power over me whatsoever. Who's the one in control? And yet Jesus is the one who's on trial. Pilate tries to use that to his advantage to talk to Jesus, saying, don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? You have no power. None. Unless it were given to you from heaven above. What an interesting thing. We're, We're reading this and it seems so backwards That the one condemned to die is actually the one in full control. And everybody else around 
him is clamoring, running around, not knowing how this is all going to end. They know what they want to do, but it's like they, they have no, no control over the situation that they seem to be guiding. It's really unusual, isn't it? And then we look at Jesus on the cross. Verses 25 through 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus was the firstborn in Joseph and Mary's family. It was his responsibility now that Joseph had passed on that he was supposed to take care of his mom. And here at the cross, while his hands and feet are nailed after he's been whipped, At the point where he's getting close to his death, he still remembers his responsibility to his mother. And he speaks directly to John from the cross saying, here is your mother and mother, this is your son. And from this time on, John took care of Mary. You know how he knows? He was there and Jesus spoke to him from the cross. Fully in control, even at this last moment, to take care of his earthly responsibilities. It's interesting that verse 28 doesn't start until 27 is done. He passes off this responsibility, and then we see in verse 28, later knowing that all now was completed. It wasn't completed before. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So here at the very end, he's passed off his mother and fulfilled his duty according to the law, so that he would still be the perfect son of God. And so that scripture would be fulfilled. He says, I thirst. And if you guys read Psalm 69, that they've given me vinegar to drink. Why did Jesus say that? So that they would give him the vinegar to drink. So that all would be fulfilled exactly as God had planned. Through everything, Jesus is the one in control of his death. He makes good on his promise. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. And his promise is not just to lay down his life, but to pick it up again. Jesus' death is needed. Has to happen. Has to. For our belief means nothing. Unusual place to put it, right? See, the one thing we can be sure of is that Jesus died on the cross. He knew he was going to die on the cross. He predicted it how many times in all the Gospels we see, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to kill the Son of Man. This is what's going to happen. He tells it to Peter. Peter says, this will never happen to you. Get behind me, Satan. 
For you're not wanting the things of God, you're interested in the things of man. My paraphrase, go read it for yourself. John knew that he died. More than any of the other disciples, John knew it. Because he was there when it happened. All the other disciples heard about it from somebody else. I don't know about you. Back in the 70s, after Elvis died, how many sightings of Elvis was there? You guys know it, right? He really lives in Mississippi. He's a, he's a mechanic over there. He's doing this. You would hear all these things. The National Enquirer would come out. We've seen Elvis. All these sightings of Elvis. You know why? Because we weren't there to see that he actually died. So it makes it very easy to come up with these sensational things, right? John was there. He saw him. He knew that he had died. This wasn't secondhand information. He didn't hear it from anybody else. He was there. He was taking care of Jesus' mom. He had heard all the predictions before. Everything was happening exactly as Jesus had said. But right now, didn't make sense to John, nor did it make sense to the other disciples. But he was there, and he knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus was dead. History shows archaeologically that crucifixion in this manner is exactly how the Romans implemented this deadly form of punishment. It's the one thing that we can all be sure of. Because death is the ultimate enemy. Take a look at with me at, real quick, just at one verse in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The interesting thing about the scripture is the scripture is very, very clear about what death really is. Death is not a happy medium into another place. It's an enemy of those who are living. An enemy that needs to be defeated. And Jesus dying was necessary in order to have death defeated. In order for you and I to have any hope at all. As strange as that sounds, we needed Jesus' death in order to have hope. Just like Dickens' classic, Marley was dead. And that, that needed to be established as fact. Or nothing glorious was going to come. If death didn't happen to Jesus, then nothing wonderful can come for anyone who's put their trust in him. And this is why it's so important that the man who saw it has given his testimony. And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. I don't know where you are in your relationship with Christ. There may be some here who don't believe. And there's a thousand different incongruities you can point to in the Bible that says you don't believe. Everything that we believe as believers in Christ hinges on the fact that Jesus died a real death on the cross. 
It has to start with the cross and with Jesus and who he is and what happens here. Everything else you might be worried about, all those other incongruities that you find in the Bible, take care of itself if this itself is resolved as fact. If it's not resolved as fact, then all the incongruities remain. And as Paul says, we are to be pitied among all people for believing the way that we do. It starts with the death of Jesus. It doesn't end there. And so if you're a non-believer or you're trying to convince somebody about belief in Jesus, it's got to start here. All the other incongruities don't matter. This one does. The others are resolved with this one. The others remain without this one. Did Jesus really live? Did he really die? And what happens after he died either makes all the difference in the world or no difference at all. That's the doorstep where we're at. And this is why John wrote, this is so that you will know that I saw Jesus died and I wrote it that you might believe. Would you stand with me? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. This season that we celebrate the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is for this purpose that he might die. But while all the world around him was in disarray through his arrest, through his beating, through his crucifixion, Jesus was in perfect control of all of it. I don't know what's going on in your life. I do know who's on the throne. He's just as much in control today, no matter what's happening in your life. And because this really happened, there's a reason for you and me to have hope in our belief in him. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this time. Thank you for Jesus who came and died for us. Thank you that we are we see the witness of that through John's gospel and to know that it really took place, that you were dead, and that you needed to be dead for us to have hope. Something wonderful is going to happen, we know, has been spoiled for us, and yet at the same time, this has to be true, O oh Lord, for that to have any effect in our life. God, thank you that you're on the throne. Thank you that nothing that happened was a shock to Jesus because Jesus was and is the son of the living God, the Christ, and that by believing in him and him alone, may we have life in his name. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for coming and rescuing us. In Jesus' name, amen.